Good morning. My name is Brandi Shufatinsky, and I'm the Director of Education and Community Engagement with the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Joining me today to discuss his new book, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, is Professor David Bernstein. Professor Bernstein holds a university professorship chair at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, where he has been teaching since 1995. He's also been a visiting professor at the University of Michigan, Georgetown University, William and Mary Brooklyn Law School, and the University of Turin. Professor Bernstein often challenges the conventional wisdom with prodigious research and sharp original analysis. Professor Bernstein is a graduate of the Yale of Yale University Law School, where he was senior editor of the Yale Law Journal and a John M. Olin Fellow in Law, Economics, and Public Policy. Thank you for speaking with us today, David. Great to be here. Thanks, Brandy. So if you don't mind, let's just jump right in. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write about racial classification? Sure. You know, all of us check these boxes all the time about our race and ethnicity, applying for college, applying for a mortgage. Uh, and so forth and so on. And we sort of accept this as sort of like fish in the water it's around us. It's natural. And I was like everybody else. I didn't really think about it too much. But uh, over time, a bunch of incidents so, sort of developed. First of all, I was doing some research. I read about a case which I discussed in the book about uh, two uh, white firemen in Irish firemen in Boston who, to take advantage of an affirmative action program, claimed they had African American ancestry, and eventually uh, that that was they were penalized for that. But the interesting thing is they uh, because they sort of made it up, but they sued and they claimed, hey, there's no official standard for what makes someone African American. If we claim to have it, you don't really have any basis for uh, saying we don't. And the it wound up going all the way up to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And the court said, well, here are some criteria to determine whether someone's really black. Uh, and that, legally speaking, and that got me thinking about the issue. And then there are a couple incidents uh, over time. Like one time I was helping our Peruvian nanny get a green card. And uh, she was filling out the green card form with me. And it said, you know, Hispanic, non-Hispanic. That was easy. Uh, but then it said uh, for race. And she said, what race should I put down? It says... She was partially uh, indigenous in origin, but she said, well, it says North American Indians only. That's not me. Uh, I said, in Sp we were having this whole conversation in Spanish, tu eres blanca, no, no soy blanca, uh, pero tu no, no, so, no eres uh, negra, uh, you're not black, though. She goes, no, I'm not black, I'm mestizo, soy mestiza. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, that's a phrase they use in Latin America for people who are of mixed race uh, origin, partly indigenous, partly Spanish, but we don't have any such class here. So one thing that occurred to me, wait, the U.S. has its own unique system. How did that come about? And another uh, related incident is the president of my university, not the current president, the previous president, was from Spain. And somehow he became like a representative of minorities in higher education on the cover of like minority issues or in higher education or diversity issues in higher education. It's like, wait a second, he's basically a white guy from Spain. Why are people from Spain considered uh, separately from Greeks or other Mediterranean Europeans or just Europeans in general? How did that come to pass? And it made me wonder, are there legal standards out there? Is it really all just self-identification? Uh, and I started looking into it. And I said, you know, I can't believe that that case involving the Irish firefighters is the only case where anyone's race or ethnicity has ever been challenged by government, even though that's what you I read. People said those are the only cases ever happened. So I started doing some digging. And I discovered uh, a few salient things. First of all, while 
race and ethnicity is generally a matter of self-identification. No one stamps you, you know, no one, no one puts some, uh, uh, a tattoo on your wrist saying you are of this or that group. There are actually legal definitions that were promulgated by the federal government in the mid 1970s that define exactly which racial groups, uh, are recognized by the United States and how they're defined. So that's number one. So even though uh, we mostly go about defining these things ourselves, there are actually official legal definitions. And number two, people are actually occasionally challenged when they assert these identities. And there are about, you know, 20 or 30 cases that I discuss in my book in which people's race or ethnicity has been challenged. And there's kind of all these like sort of arbitrary, often contradictory decisions as to what you need to show, even though there is an official definition uh, in the federal register, uh, federal law, there, is, there are these cases that say, well, uh, well, it says you have to be of Spanish cultured origin to be Hispanic, but even though you do have Spanish grandparents and even though you speak Spanish uh, and even though you're involved in the Hispanic community, you don't look Hispanic, whatever that means. Uh, you don't have a Spanish last name because it's from your maternal line that you're Spanish. And you'll have the evidence you suffered discrimination because of your Spanish-speaking origin, so you're not Hispanic. Yet there'll be another case where a guy says, well, my ancestors were Sephardic Jews who were kicked out of Spain in 1492. I don't have any other connections, but all it says is that you have to be of Spanish origin. And the court will say, yeah, that's all it says. That's right. You get to claim you're Hispanic. So the takeaways here are that, uh, in fact, there are official definitions. It's not, you can't just identify yourself whoever you want. Sometimes it can be challenged. You can be denied a minority status. And sometimes you can even be punished, fired from a job. So my book goes through how, how these classifications arose, how they're enforced, and how they've sort of insinuated themselves uh, in American life to the extent that some classifications they really didn't even exist 50 years ago. Like no one called themselves Hispanic or Asian American 50 years ago are now very common and we all sort of accept it as natural. Mm -hmm. No, I, I um, actually read read your book, which is fascinating. I like how you go through the history um, of classification, which brings me kind of to the next couple of questions. Um, so it's how do you believe race is used in the United States? So do you think it's used um, as to self-identify or do government organizations use it for other purposes? And then what happens when self-racial classification conflicts with government or legal racial classification? So I think a lot of people think that racial classifications, the way I discussed to the extent they're aware of them, were primarily uh, brought in to enable affirmative action preferences, but that's not really how they started. What happened is that in the 1950s and 60s, we started having first executive orders by the federal government to prohibit discrimination by contractors. And then the 1964 Civil Rights Act by discrimination in employment uh, and uh, education. And then the 1965 Voting Rights Act banning discrimination in voting. And basically, um, there were different uh, conceptions of exactly how these things were going to be enforced. But basically, the government found it was very difficult to figure out whether anyone was discriminating unless we had statistics about uh, race, basically, of employees, of students, of who gets to vote, who doesn't get to vote. So even though there had been a big push after World War II, after the Holocaust, when the civil rights movement was uh, getting underway to say, hey, racial classification should not be something the government should pay attention to, civil rights act, act advocates said, you know what, we won't be able to enforce these laws unless we have numerical baselines, unless we can figure out who is actually voting, who is being hired by General Motors or who is being admitted to Harvard. So they uh, rely on these classifications uh, for those purposes. And 
because they were used primarily for anti-discrimination purposes, the classifications basically matched the groups that we thought had faced the most discrimination historically. But also, how there was a very strong norm and sometimes a legal rule that you weren't allowed to ask people about their race or ethnicity back in the 50s and 60s. So even though there were some white groups that had faced a lot of discrimination, Italian-Americans, Jewish-Americans, you weren't allowed to ask. It would have been very awkward to try to figure out statistically whether someone was discriminating against Jews, where you'd have to sort of just visually, you could sort of visually tell whether most people are African-American or white. Very hard to tell whether someone's Jewish or Italian. So uh, we got the classifications um, basically for anti-discrimination purposes and when they and to keep statistics of, well, you know, we want to make sure African-Americans and, his, and Mexicans are making progress now that the civil rights movement's underway. How are they doing educationally? So they wanted to regularize these statistics in the government. There are all sorts of different ways of, cl- of defining who is Hispanic or they didn't even use that term. They could say Spanish-speaking Americans, Spanish surnames, Spanish-speaking households, Mexican or, or Cuban, Mexican or Puerto Rican or Cuban, and so forth. So they want to regularize it. So basically, um, they said, let's just make uniform classifications so we're not comparing apples and oranges in our data. But do not use these, do not confuse these categories with anthropological categories. And they're certainly not scientific and they shouldn't be used to determine eligibility for any programs. So that was the intent. But of course, government being the way it is and private bureaucracies being the way it is, they say, well, we want to engage in affirmative action. We want to do that. We want to study things for our anthropology class, whatever. What, what data do we use? Well, we already have all the civil rights data that's being collected. So we'll just use those same classifications. So the classifications that were intended for relatively narrow purposes wound up, in fact, becoming used in science, in, of course, for affirmative action, but also in sociological studies. I was just reading a study today in the Washington Post about to what extent millennials leave their uh, household, leave, move far away from home. And most of them are staying close to home, but they break it down into Asian American, Hispanic American, Black American, and white. And like, well, why those classifications? Why, why is Hispanic, you know, the Cuban American community in Miami is very different than the Mexican American community in Texas or California, which is very different from Puerto Ricans in New York or Boston. Why would you put them all together if you're doing a sociological study. And the answer is because those are that's the data government collects. That's the easiest thing to do. So we have a situation where the government has made these sort of arbitrary official classifications that are used all over the place, which correlate but are not completely coextensive with the way they with the way people see themselves, and of course, influence the way people see themselves. Like I said, 50 years ago, no one thought of themselves as being Hispanic. The phrase basically didn't exist in that context. Now, most people who we call Hispanic still, despite the government uh, and despite all these box checking, still prefer to be called Mexican-American or just American or whatever group they're from, but they accept Hispanic as a secondary identity. About 40% of Asian-Americans consider themselves in some way to be Asian-American, even though 50 years ago, basically no one would have. So on the one hand, they have some real salience, uh, both legally and culturally. On the other hand, people haven't fully accepted them. On the other side, it's become very common to refer to uh, Arab Americans as people of color, but officially, according to the government, they're white. So do you think that the whole classification, uh, that affirmative action was the main driver influence for the decision to racially classify Americans? Uh, so again, you know, it was, it was mostly just a matter of data collection. Mm-hmm. But let's say you're Harvard University or your uh, or, or or any other university in 1978, you're trying to figure out what should we do about affirmative action. 
And if you look in the 70s, there would have been a wide range of different affirmative action policies in place in schools across the country. Some schools would not have considered Hispanics at all, would only have had African-Americans and maybe uh, American Indians. Uh, some schools, like the famous Baki case involving affirmative action in uh, medical school, which went to the Supreme Court, the program there included Asians, Mexican, I believe it was Asians, Mexican-Americans, uh, and African-Americans, and uh, American Indians did not include, though, other Hispanic groups. Uh, some programs would have included Chinese and Japanese Americans, but not his, but not, uh, but and all Hispanics. Some would have included only some Hispanic groups and not Asian Americans, and so forth and so on. There was all sorts of different ways of doing this, and then the government comes in and says, "Here are our official minority groups." And you have to collect data when you admit students. You have to ask them to check. Until today, my daughter's applying to college this year, so I've been looking over the applications. You have to check. Are you black uh, slash African-American? Are you Hispanic? Are you um, Native American? If so, what tribe? Uh, are you uh, Asian-American or are you white? So you the, these universities could have, in theory, come up with their own criteria for what can, constitutes diversity or what, what students we think especially should be uh, recruited. But in fact, they just went with the government statistics. And, you know, while we now think of Asian Americans as a group that's often discriminated against in higher education, back in the 70s, even into the 80s, at least on the East Coast, where there were fewer Asian Americans, they were actually an affirmative action uh, category. Now, the really weird one is that in late the late 1990s, early 2000s, the federal government started mandating that any entity regulated by NIH uh, or that get, gets grants from NIH and National Institutes of Health or, for, or that is subject to FDA regulation has to uh, have enough, whatever that means, members of minority groups in their studies to ensure that we all have confidence that they're not neglecting parts of the population. Now, you would think that by, and all the biomedical groups that is ridiculous. There's no real. There's no reason we should care whether someone's Hispanic or whatever for purposes of a study. So you think that they might have gotten that that the FDA and NIH might have put their heads together and said, okay, let's figure out since we know that these racial categories are incredibly crude and unscientific, let's actually figure out genetically how we divide people. Not that we want to be divisive, but just for medical studies, clustering people genetically would actually make a certain amount of sense. And instead, I think taking the path of you know, but you can't really imagine politically the government getting together a bunch of anthropologists and geneticists and saying, how do we divide people? So they just took the path of least resistance. So we already have these classifications, so let's just use them. So we have this really crazy situation where, for example, the Moderna uh, vaccine for COVID was being held up until Moderna had enough Hispanics in its uh, study, even though Hispanics are not, they're not even, you know, however you think of race, whatever you know, free, whatever way you want to define it, they're not one. They're not genetically, you know, a, Hispanic, a person who calls himself Hispanic or is classified as Hispanic could be could be of African descent, could be of indigenous descent, could be of Spanish descent, could even be of Asian descent or any combination. Saying someone's Hispanic is like saying they're American. So why would you, why would you delay a life-saving vaccine uh, to make sure you have enough of a group that has no genetic salience whatsoever, even if you thought that these, that it, and there's, no, there's no reason to really think you needed this sort of diversity to begin with, but if you did, Hispanic wouldn't be a category. So the long and the short of it, what I'm trying to say is these classifications have taken on a life of their own, starting off being 
uh, made for this very limited purpose of trying to make data collection more uniform and wind up and you wind up at a point where even though they specifically said we're not saying this is any scientific salience at all don't think so that we actually use them as our scientific categories in research do you think that it has anything to do with the, what the classifications that began like during and post civil rights era was kind of a backlash for how people were racially classified maybe half a century earlier when when race was used to prevent people from coming to the United States? So say when the Chinese Exclusionary Act was also then broadened to, to exclude Jews from Eastern Europe because they were called Oriental from immigrating to the United States. And maybe it's a backlash Sure. I mean, there's actually, uh, there, you know, it, it depends how you look at it, right? One way you could look at it is, well, the classifications we utilize are more or less the racial categories that were used by the government to discriminate, right? The only, it was, it was in the United States, even though we had a lot of discrimination against uh, white ethnic groups from Eastern and Southern Europe, they were not officially racially classified the way Asians were, the way African-Americans were going way back besides slavery and stuff, which was a state institution on the census and uh, so forth. There was always a distinction. But on the other hand, uh, if we're getting to modern classifications, we're really trying to say, hey, uh, what's going on with regard to discrimination or even how are different groups doing? The classifications become uh, extremely arbitrary and crude. And what you've sort of done is wound up inadvertently recreating the racist classifications of the past. For example, the United States Supreme Court in 1922, or it was maybe 23, determined that people from South Asia, like people from India, were uh, should be classified as Asian, even though they were Caucasian, because Americans don't see them as white. Uh, so they just, even though they're anthropologically or genetically closer to Europeans, we're still going to call them Asians. When we created the modern Asian category, we originally, uh, the big, the three big Asian groups were Chinese, Filipinos, and Japanese. Uh, and we said, okay, we'll stick them all together because it's too hard to classify them separately. But what about Asian uh, Indians? Well, Asian Indians, we don't have that many of them. They're doing very well economically. They own a lot of businesses. Uh, many of them aren't at least some of them aren't uh, so dark-skinned, and they are more Caucasian-looking. We'll make them uh, white, um, to the extent it was thought about, it was thought about at all. And then there was a, a small Indian American lobbying group that said, "Wait a second, we don't want to be classified as white. We want to get in on whatever government interventions are being used to help minorities." So they lobbied to have the at the last minute that the proposed classification of Asian wound up including South Asians. Uh, they would have been happy with a separate South Asian classification, but there just weren't enough South Asians in the country uh, that they thought they could do that plausibly. So in any event, we wind up with this weird classification where people from India are in the same classification as people from China, who are in the same classification from people from the Philippines, even though, you know, it's hard to see what they have in common, except they're all from the continent of Asia. And they say, well, well that, that's something, except that not everyone from the continent of Asia is in that category. People from the Middle East, from Afghanistan, from Armenia uh, are not, uh, are all from Asia, but they're not actually in the Asian category. So we wound up, you know, I don't think anyone was really thinking about it too deeply, uh, but we wound up recreating the racist Asian American category from, 19, from the 1920s for the modern era. As you, as you know, it's still the case that while we do have 
pan-Asian groups. If you go to college campuses, you will find that there's typically an Asian-American group, which is East Asians, and then there's a South Asian group, which is like Pakistanis, Indians, Bangladeshis. And if there are foreign students, it gets more complicated because you won't find Pakistanis and Indians you know, they don't like each other typically because of the hostilities between their home countries and the religious differences. So there'll be a separate Indian American, Indian, you know, graduate student organization, Pakistani graduate student association. So the crude classifications that we use, again, we've recreated uh, old racist classifications, but we've also, to some extent, um, uh, we have, to some extent, uh, created new American ethnic identities, but we've all, but also uh, the federal government hasn't fully been able to persuade people to go along with them. So, so you mentioned college and, and your daughter's university application. Somebody um, asked the question um, in the chat, are colleges uh, now allowed to make their own classification metrics? As far as I could tell, colleges have always been allowed to use their own classification mm -hmm. metrics. I mean, they have to ask you for federal education purposes, the Department of Education, Department of Education Office of Civil Rights requires them to ask whether you're Hispanic or not, and then these other classifications to gather that data. Now are they people could, required to answer. You are not required to answer, but I'm not. I'm not 100 percent sure of the education context. In many contexts, if you don't answer, they like if you when you file an employment form, if you don't answer, the rule is that they have to guess. So you can't get away with saying, I just, I want to be considered a, you know, a, uh, just as an individual, I don't want to be considered to have a race. I don't want you to treat me uh, as a, as a member of a racial group. You don't really have that option uh, in practice because they're required uh, to do that, but they could, I was actually just discussing this with somebody. If they wanted uh, to, they could just, um, they could out, you know, right now when you apply to college, you apply on something called the common app, which the vast majority of colleges use. The common app people could make an agreement with one or more universities to say, we will gather this data, uh, ask people on the app what race and so forth they are, and you can report that information to the Department of Education, but then you could separately ask much more detailed questions or different questions about people's ethnic and other sorts of background. And if you're trying to pursue diversity, true diversity, rather than sort of arbitrary diversity, you could completely ignore the official statistics and use your own. I don't know of any university that's ever done anything along those lines. It's actually kind of interesting, right? Because mm -hmm. um, the universities claim to, you know, claim to and have to claim to legally that they're using these this data for diversity, but it becomes very strange, as I mentioned in my book. You know, let's say you're University of Texas, and you right now have a thousand Mexican American students and a thousand Asian American students who you've admitted into your class. Uh, now, you of those thousand uh, uh, well Hispanic students, of those thousand Hispanic students, nine hundred of them are Mexican American. Of the uh, thousand Asian students, there are a combination of uh, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, uh, and uh, Vietnamese uh, and Indian. And then some. You have two new applicants who appear, and you're deciding which one should get the final slot in some program. One of them is Mexican American, and the other is a Hmong from Minnesota. You have no Hmong at University of Texas. You've never had any Hmong at University of Texas. You have already 900 Mexican-Americans in your class. Anyone just looking at the, what the word diversity would mean outside of our weird affirmative action uh, classifications would say, well, obviously, University of Texas becomes more diverse if they accept their first Hmong and if they accept their 901st Mexican-American. But that's not the way it works 
uh, in practice. The way in practice, diversity just means we have more Hispanics uh, and maybe fewer Asians because they're, you know, because they're quote unquote overrepresented. So in the end, even though we already have 900 Mexican Americans and you only have one, have no Hmong, no Hmong is just put into the broad general Asian category and oh, we have enough of those, and we don't need any more, but we could use some more Mexican Americans for diversity. So uh, in, the, in a situation like that, the quest for diversity actually makes the university less diverse. So I've seen in some applications, uh, college ad, uh, applications, my oldest two sons, I've been through what you're going through with your daughter now already. Um, so it'll be fun times for you. But, but um, I remember one of the questions asking if they're first generation um, to, to attend university. And seeing that question asked on a few different applications, and I wonder if it's to address what you just pointed out, like trying to get to a more, like a deeper version of diversity versus just kind of surface level um, racial categories or color-based racial categories that don't necessarily mean anything. Have you seen yeah, that question? I have, and you know, I've even seen University of Chicago, I noticed has a $2,000 scholarship you get automatically if you're a first generation a college mm -hmm. student. And I think, I think, you know, to their credit, um, colleges could be elite colleges in particular could be justly accused, uh, even in the affirmative action era of essentially reproducing hierarchy as the left would say, be my friends, the left would say that whatever they're doing with regard to racial preferences or ethnic preferences, basically their classes have historically been, uh, even recently very heavily weighted towards upper middle class and upper class families and have the educational and other resources to really pursue higher education. And to their credit, some universities have really tried to address that by really expanding uh, how much financial aid they're giving to um, uh, working class families. Uh, poor families always sort of got something close to a free ride. But, you know, now I think if you go to, if you have, if your family makes less than $125,000 a year, you get to go to Stanford for free. I think Harvard is more like 85,000. So there, and the first generation thing is also addressing that. Although again, if you're asking me, I mean, this could be a little crude uh, because um, there may be someone who's, dad moved here from uh, Moldova and started a plumbing supply company is worth millions of dollars. And now he's sending his kids to college. He's a first generation, mm -hmm. but uh, he may be a lot better off in a whole variety of ways than someone who's uh mom went to college, you know, graduated state, U, got divorced when she was, got pregnant, got divorced when she was 23 and has been struggling, you know, economically ever since. So, you know, any kind of classification is going to have, uh, uh, on the margins, some room for error or for uh, counterproductivity, uh, but um, the general the the general thrust of the first generation thing is like, hey, if we want diversity, we shouldn't just be looking at these official classifications, but also looking at socioeconomic diversity. I would argue, you know, other sorts of diversity as well would make a class more interesting. I think that's sort of a step in the right direction in that sense. Okay, somebody. Um commented that, uh, and I, I believe I know this person who, who commented it, and he's a, a professor of anthropology, that an example that he uses in class about racial classification in the U.S. is how the eyeball test was used with the application of the Dawes rolls from 1898 to 1907. And the Dawes rolls, well, you can, I don't know if you want to address that comment. Yeah, so the, uh, so um the, the, there's a lot, you know, the um, history of American Indians and how they were classified or not 
is uh, fascinating. I have a chapter on Native Americans. Uh, I should say that in American, in federal law, they're generally called American Indians. So, if, uh, so uh, whatever your preferred term is, I'm going to actually use American Indians because that's the official legal classification. Uh, and you know, like everything else, there, you know, well, what you know, it was easy if you were living on a tribe in, in a, on a tribal reservation in an accessible area. It's quite easy to figure out who is Indian. But otherwise, you know, there are all sorts of different ways historically that people have determined uh, who is an Indian. And American Indians, unlike, say, African-Americans, are a really interesting case because there was not a one-drop rule. One thing I learned, I was visiting uh, Barrow, Alaska, uh, where Will Roger, which is the very northern, on the Arctic Ocean, very northern tip of Alaska, and there's a little memorial to Will Rogers, who apparently died in a plane crash there. And Will Rogers, of course, classic, you know, humorist, uh, all-around, you know, all-American guy. Turns out he was three-eighths Native American. Uh, you know, so it's a very different situation. But basically, if you were part white, part American Indian, but you were sort of assimilated, you would you could pass, or I don't know, it's not really called passing. You were five eighths white, but you could be considered white within the community. Whereas in the if you're African American and people knew you had an ancestry, it was much more difficult. But in any event, today the interesting thing is that with regard to is that there are all sorts of federal laws out there benefiting and sometimes not benefiting uh, American Indians. And every law, I, I should say every law has its own definition, but there are a lot of different ways of defining who counts as an American Indian in the federal law. There is uh, the most weird one to me. You have to be of one quarter Indian blood quantum. That means you have to be one quarter you know, descended, descended genetically of a Native American. And this is was pretty shocking to me. The federal government actually issues uh, certificates of blood quantum. And the you know, Bureau of Indian Affairs recognizes that you, David Bernstein, if, uh, if this was true, is one quarter Indian blood quantum. And you could show that to the Bureau of Indian Affairs to get certain benefits. There is the test, are you a member of a tribe? Uh, are you a member of a federally recognized tribe, a federally or state recognized tribe? Are you known in the community to be an Indian? Do you consider yourself uh, to be an Indian? Does the U.S. government in some sense consider you to be an Indian? Uh, and, um, you know, and so, and sometimes it's either or, but uh, there, you know, you could be, you could definitely be uh, an American Indian under federal law for one purpose and not for others. Uh, and there, and, I think the most interesting um, uh, hypothetical here is there are some tribes that require you to have paternal ancestry and some that require you to have maternal ancestry. Uh, so you could be a 100 percent, you know, fully genetically American Indian. But if you're but if it's your father who was who's uh, but if your father was from one, you know, if you would need patrilineal descent, but you have matrilineal for one tribe and you need matrilineal descent, but you have patrilineal descent on the other you are not an in you're not a member of any tribes so you're not indian on the other hand the cherokee have records dating back to 1830 and anyone who's descended from someone who is an indian uh and a member of the cherokee tribe in 1830 is still uh considered a member of the tribe so you could be there's someone out there who's one i think 5268th cherokee who is a member of the cherokee tribe so on the one hand you could be a hundred percent Native American and not be a tribal member, therefore not be an Indian, but you could be 15,268th Native American uh, as a Cherokee and still be an Indian. That's something that, that somebody commented also about how um, you can have members of the same family that are in their Native American, but classified in different ways, which is what, uh, 
what you what you just mentioned. So right. I know um, some people argue that the government shouldn't be in the business of classifying people, which I believe you is you know some some of the points you make in your book, um, similar to what how things are done in France. But there are a ton of uh, cultural and historical differences between the United States and France, and in the American case, um, American culture has been influenced by a diversity that French culture isn't. So I would say like America, American as a category is a nationality where French is both a nationality and arguably an ethnicity. So how, what, how should we go about determining how to define American culture in a way that would eliminate what some see as the need for racial and ethnic classification? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the French solution is very tempting because it gets us out of all these problems, right? Just say, yeah, we're all just American and that's that. Um, but, you know, this had this definitely has some downsides. One downside is, like you said, it does sort of imply that French is an ethnicity, which makes it harder for people who are of non-French ethnicities who become French citizens to actually be fully accepted as, as French. Uh, way back in the 1980s, I think it was, there was a bombing of uh, Jewish, a kosher restaurant in Paris. And the prime minister infamously said something like, uh, I was, oh, it's a terrible bombing. There were four people killed, one of whom was French. Now they were all French, but three of them were Jews. And he just didn't think still of Jews as being French because they're not you know, ethnically uh, French. So there's that issue. And, it's been, and that's been an issue, I think, for the, the integration of North Africans, uh, immigrants from Algeria, Morocco into uh, France. And one reason why they have sort of relatively poor rates of socioeconomic uh, integration is because of this notion that you, know, you have to be, that there's something innate, uh, there's some sort of innate Frenchness. The other issue is, and it's related, is that if you don't consider people's race and ethnicity, if there is a real problem out there regarding a particular group for whatever reason, uh, you are intentionally really oblivious to it. So again, two examples from France, again, both in, one involving Jews, one involving uh, North African Muslims. Uh, the Jewish community for, you know, there has been rising anti-Semitism, violent anti-Semitism in France. Primarily, it's primarily North African Jews who are being uh, subject to violence by North African um, Muslim immigrants or and their descendants. Uh, but for a long time, when Jews were complaining of this rise in anti-Semitism asking the French government to do about it, to do something about it. The French government said, oh, well, there isn't that much violence against people by the North African community against French people. You know, we, we can't, we're not going to, even though, Jew, you know, uh, if you considered only the Jewish perspective, they were being subject to a tremendous amount of violence per capita. But if you just consider them part of the French polity, uh, mm -hmm. the French, it wasn't, it wasn't that much of a problem. So the government sort of denied there was a problem when there obviously was one. Similarly speaking, again, I mentioned that uh, French Algerians and uh, Moroccans have had uh, you know, some trouble integrating into French society and, uh, and becoming more economically successful. And the French government uh, doesn't recognize, has historically not recognized this problem because they don't even keep statistics on it. Uh, the, you know, there's a book out there, Seeing Like a State, uh, which is a very interesting book. And the, what, one of the points the author makes is that you know, the government only cares about what it could tabulate and count. So if you if, if you don't have statistics on how North African immigrants specifically are doing, it's very easy to neglect the fact that, hey, they're living in these bad neighborhoods with bad schools with high rates of violence. How do we help them integrate into society? So the, bringing this to the American context, um, we don't want to have this notion that there's that America, American uh, is 
that there, you know, there is a, I think there's a possibility we can move towards the idea of America being a multiracial ethnicity. But I think even today, we would think if we were going to have like an American identity, we still think of it as sort of being uh, historically a white identity. And we don't want to force people uh, and require people to either uh, um, somehow assimilate into a white identity if they don't want to, or to consider, you know, if you have other, uh, cultural, ethnic, et cetera, backgrounds, you should be able to adopt that. And for that matter, in the United States, we also have a, unlike France, we have a much broader uh, range of religious identities. A lot of people, their primary identity isn't even American as such. It's like, I'm a Christian, I'm a serious Catholic, I'm a, you know, I'm a serious um, Mormon or whatever it might be. So that's one. So uh, it would be hard to, to do that. But also I do think, I mean, I, I think that, regardless of whether one thinks a French style, we're all just Americans, um, ideal is an ideal which you're working towards, where certainly, we certainly, there's no political or cultural willingness to go there now, because there is still enough inequality and discrimination that I think there is a strong sense that we do need these anti-discrimination laws, we do need to enforce them. And once again, if the government doesn't even collect those statistics, and how do we know? How would we know, especially something like the Voting Rights Act, how would you know if there's some county in uh, rural Mississippi that is uh, in various subterfuges denying African-Americans the right to vote, unless you know how many African-Americans there are there who are eligible to vote to begin with? Right. So on that, there's um, a question that, that somebody posted, but I want to, before I get to that, I want to ask you if, do you believe that racial classification solely used to right a perceived or real wrong? And if so, should it be used in that manner? And if it isn't, then why do we classify people by race? And this is kind of related to the question that um, so, that I'll, I'll ask you in a minute that's, that somebody posted. Sure. So I think I think uh, well, I, well, I I do argue at the end of the book for what I call the separation of church and state, which I. I'm not the first one to use that phrase, but I will hopefully take credit for popularizing it. Uh, I think I think we generally want to have a separation of church and, of race and state for the same reasons we generally want to have a separation of church and state, which is that people's ethnic racial identities are both very important to them often, uh, just like religious identities, and also historically we know that a lot of wars, riots, violence, and so forth are caused by r racial and ethnic differences, just like they're caused by religious differences. So in the end, we rather we want the government to be neutral on those differences rather than trying to put its thumb on the scale on one side or the other. Uh, that said, what I also argue for is that what we really want is to think about in each case, well, what are we trying to accomplish by by whatever classification we're using? If we're just trying to enforce anti-discrimination laws, then the basic categories that they came up with for that purpose, they're certainly imperfect. There's certainly still no reason why you'd have, you know, Indian and Pakistani Americans in the same classification as Malaysians and Filipinos and Chinese. But you know, they're 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 I wouldn't say, I, I'm not sure we're going to come up with anything better if we try to revise those. So I'm okay with them in that context. If you're trying, for example, though, to do medical studies or sociological studies for medicine, you really want to look at genetics. People might say, mm -hmm. I, I'm one of these people who say race is socially constructed. And you'll say, oh no, but there's genetics underlying it. Like, yeah, of course there's genetics, but the, the correlation between 
racial identity and the underlying genetics is quite crude. There's a lot of genetic diversity within each so-called racial classification. And one thing I learned from the book is that the most genetically diverse continent is Africa. Since human life arose out of Africa, there was more time for more different groups to develop and have more genetic diversity. So the tallest ethnic group in the world is from Africa. Uh, I forget their name, but the shores, we all know the pygmies, they're also in Africa. In North, mm -hmm. is a big continent. North Africans like uh, who are black, we can think of them as black, like Somalis and the Ethiopians, are very internally genetically diverse and a fairly large percentage of the ethnic groups in those countries are more ethnically related to Arabs and Jews than they are to uh, sub-Saharan Africans. So um, if you're looking, if you're trying to do genetics for medicine, you should really just look at genetics. Uh, we have cheap, relatively available genetic tests, and that would actually advance medicine. Trying to force uh, people into a Hispanic or, you know, Asian category, I was, I actually was looking at some COVID studies and said, Asians have the following rate or whatever. So I actually wrote to the study author and I said, you know, it says Asian. And I'm kind of curious because I'm doing something related to this. Do you know what group of Asians you're talking about? And he said, they're, no, they're actually Chinese. They're all Chinese. I'm like, okay, so now, so it would make a lot more sense to say that we had, you know, a thousand Chinese subjects because there's no reason, even if there was some reason to think that whatever they were studying uh, about COVID was genetically related. There's no reason to think that if Chinese individuals have this whatever genetic uh, mutation that is re relevant, that would also be relevant to Austronesians from the Philippines or Caucasians from uh, India or even maybe from other ethnic groups within China. So anyway, so there's that. For sociological studies, there are vast differences uh, within each of these classifications. You have um, in the Hispanic classification, again, you know, even within the state of Florida, Cuban Americans in urban Miami are not going to have much in common you know, sociologically with farm workers in central Florida who've immigrated over the last couple of decades from Puerto Rico. And you could think of all sorts of other, even Mexican Americans in Texas are different in a variety of ways than Mexican Americans in California. Uh, with Asian Americans, you have, you know, 60% of the world's populations from Asia, uh, not just from Asia, from the Asian countries we call Asia in our classification. And it's just these vast differences and saying, oh, well, look, Asian Americans are the model minority. They're over up. Well, no, uh, actually, if you look at the statistics for elite colleges, if you to the extent you could dig down, like Berkeley actually keeps these, the group that's doing the best uh, in terms of how many kids get into Berkeley are Indian Americans, then Chinese Americans, then Japanese Americans, then Korean Americans, then Vietnamese are, and uh, a couple of the other groups like Cambodians are about equal to their population. Then other groups like Hmong and some of the more obscure groups like Burmese, they actually have relatively low socioeconomic indicators. So why are we lumping them all together as Asian, mm -hmm. even within the African-American community? There are uh, big differences. I didn't know this before I did my before I wrote this book. Uh, this was much higher than I would have guessed. Ten percent of all uh, Americans who identify as African American were born abroad. Uh, if you include their children and grandchildren, obviously a significant percentage of the African American community are not descendants of American slaves and sharecroppers and so forth, but are descendants of immigrants from Africa uh, or the Caribbean. Uh, then there are, and there's a substantial percentage of Americans who. Um, you know, we think of as African, or we classify as African American, but they have uh, a white, one white parent or one white grandparent, and might think of themselves as being multiracial. Uh, and of course, there are other differences between people who immigrated to the North uh, during World War One and those who immigrated uh, after in the 1950s, after World War Two, and you know, lots of other different distinctions. And if you're really going to do a sound anthropological, sociological study, you should be sensitive to these differences. If you instead just use the crude racial 
classifications, you're going to get crude generalizations that will often lead you astray when it comes to the specific subpopulations. So <laughs> that, that relates to this question that was posted because um, I see the racial classifications as not looking at origin and ethnicity and region, but looking at what somebody visually sees, which is um, skin color. Um, somebody asked if, if you'd please address the issue of American Jews being subject to quotas for admission to universities and medical schools um, versus American Jews now being considered white um, as, a, 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 as a racist view. Sure. Um, so uh, the Jewish story is kind of interesting. Um, American Jews never want to be classified separately than the general population. Uh, and the general population, uh, basically, we have to keep in mind that for the most part, we had black and white in the United States historically. We had a small, even as late as like 1970, the Asian American population was around 1%. There was about 5% of what we would now call Hispanics. But historically, the federal government, at least, uh, considered Mexican-Americans and other Hispanics to be white. The idea of a separate Hispanic classification was novel at the time. So being so obviously, American Jews weren't black, so um, or weren't you know, of African descent, and therefore not black in the American context. So they they wanted to be considered white and not be considered a separate ethnic or racial or, or racial group in statistics for you know for the obvious reasons of what happened to the Jews in Europe, uh, where they did keep Jews, they did keep tallies of Jews separately. Uh, they want they didn't want to be considered a foreign group. In around the turn of the century, um, Congress told the immigration officials they have to keep track of race. Uh, in of who's coming into the United States and ethnicity and national origin. And the immigration people wanted to classify Jews as a separate race. Uh, and they, in fact, lobbied the census to add a, a Jewish category to the census so that they could then justify having a separate Jewish category in the immigration forms. And the American Jewish organizations and their allies went ballistic and killed it. Uh, and the reason the immigration officials wanted to say, well, look, most of the Jews who come from Eastern Europe speak Yiddish. They're sort of a different culture. We should to note them separately from uh, like other Polish people or uh, other Polish immigrants or other Czech immigrants. And the compromise that was eventually reached was that they did do it by mother tongue and they put Jews down as Hebrews uh, often, but they were not, but then they would just go into the white uh, classification. Nevertheless, this is something that it's very hard for me to get across, because especially to young people, because uh, young people seem to believe that the only uh, that there's a black-white binary, and either you are not considered white and therefore discriminated against, or you are white and not discriminated against, because whites have all the privilege. Nevertheless, there was a tremendous amount of discrimination against Jews, among other ethnic groups. There was also a lot of discrimination against Italian Americans earlier, against Irish people, against Poles, uh, and the fact that they were considered to be white. Uh, and classified as white, and that the vast majority of Americans would have identified them as white, and they were legally always white. They could always, you know, marry other whites in laws in states that banned that. Does not mean that they weren't subject to a lot of discrimination. They were Jews were banned from social organizations. They were banned. They were almost, they found it almost impossible to get jobs in certain industries like insurance and banking, uh, and among others. It's one reason why Jews sort of started Hollywood because. That was a new industry, so there weren't barriers. Uh, there were quotas at universities and so forth. Uh, and it wasn't really until, you know, even as late as when I was in law school in the 1980s, I wouldn't say there was any more discrimination against Jewish law students in elite law firms, but there were still some white law firms that were known as the historically WASP 
law firms, in other words, they didn't take Jews in the past, even though they were doing it now. So uh, there. So the problem is again the, that the young people. I don't know what goes what goes on in university classrooms these days, but young people have been convinced that you're either white and have privilege, or you're un, not white and don't have privilege. And since Jews have always been considered white, that means they were always privileged. And since and since privilege is then associated with uh, high socioeconomic success, since Jews uh, do are more socioeconomically successful than other white ethnics, they are not only white; they're like uber white. Uh, so Jews are like Jews are not just um, are not just white people, but they are actually uh, more white than the, you know they are even more privileged than the average white person. And you know, there's one guy I know who was at Princeton, and he got in trouble with the princess. Oh yeah, my grandmother was really privileged when she survived Auschwitz. And everyone's like, oh, you don't really understand. Well, yeah, in the United States, he's fine. But if we're going to go by his, you know, history, that's pretty close history. So in any event, um, this is uh, this is actually, uh, this goes a little bit beyond the scope of my book, but something I am interested in, which is that uh, this notion that socioeconomic dis- uh, success is both determined by how much discrimination you face in society and how much you're part of the elite. It's just not. It's it's not. It's just not empirically true. Some discriminate against minority groups, nevertheless, do better socioeconomically. Although, and sometimes the discrimination in some ways makes them closer knit and gives them some advantages. Therefore, because there are also I'm not a sociologist. There are also sociological reasons. But this notion that if a group is doing well socioeconomically, it must be because they're oppressing somebody else is actually, I think, um, creating either if not creating a lot of anti-Semitism among the woke students at college and so forth, it's at least making them insensitive to anti-Semitism. They understand, well, if Jews are economically successful, how could they be uh, you know, threatened or under pressure in any way? And I say, well, does your church or house of worship have a police car in front of it every week. You know, when you send your kids to uh, your, you know, when I send my kids to a Jewish day school, do they have to have a security guard and, and truck bomb barriers? You know, there's just, you know, I, they may, maybe, you know, okay, you know, is that, is that my privilege, right? So I'm, I'm not, and I think comp- trying to just compare, it's like, well, but you're not, you haven't suffered the way Africa, no, we haven't had 300 years of, you know, of slavery, Jim Crow and so forth. You, but it, it's not a contest. Each group has its own history and its own um, challenges to face. And the fact that African-Americans are undoubtedly, along with Native Americans, the group that faced the most state violence and, pri- and you know, and, and private conspiracy against them doesn't mean that there aren't also other groups that have struggled in their own ways. Yes. Um, there's an article written by Pamela Paresky, uh, Critical Race Theory and the Hyper-White Jew, and in it, she discusses this, how when um, being white was a good thing, Jews weren't white. And now that being white is considered oppressive or you're an oppressor, Jews are hi- like hyper white, like you mentioned. Um, it was a, It's a great article if you haven't read it. But it Yeah, you could say the same thing, you know, at a time when sort of white ethnic nationalism uh or it wasn't really not, like local ethnic nationalisms in Europe were all the rage, and Jews were foreign Asiatics. Mm-hmm. But within Jews resettled in Israel, now all of a sudden they're the whites oppressing the people of color. This, I mean, unfortunately, you know, Jews, uh, you know, Jews are the this is this is the um, the the morphability of anti-Semitism that the communists say the Jews are all the, are, are responsible for capitalism, the capitalists say the Jews are responsible for communism. You know, we can go on and on about that. It's really not the subject mm-hmm. of my book, but it's certainly related and something that I certainly have an, an interest in as well. Um, someone asked for your email <laughs> um, to continue the conversation, and I 
uh, know this person. So you can let me know if it's good to send or if you want to. Sure. I mean, actually, anyone who's listening who wants to correspond further or so forth, you could uh, feel free to shoot me an email. It's uh, my first initial D and my last name Bernstein. But, you know, it's one of these old emails from 40 years ago, uh, 30 years ago. So it doesn't have only has it's only eight, eight, eight characters. So D Bernstein without the I-N at GMU.edu, George Mason University.edu. Great. Thank you. All right. Um, I just want to say thank you to, uh, for for being with us here. The book is excellent. I think um, anytime a book leaves me with more questions than concrete answers, I, I, I give it a two thumbs up. Um, it's fascinating. And I have one last question to ask you. If there was anything that you would would suggest or recommend that through governmental agencies, through in the, in the legal aspect, be done about racial classification in the United States, what would it be? So I would... Um... Get, I would. I mean, the, the the single one that I find most troubling and worrisome for the future is I would abolish entirely the use of racial classification in medicine. The usefulness of these classifications is grossly exaggerated, and the dangers of you know uh, of both retarding better research based on genetics, but also causing racial tensions, social tensions. I mean, during the COVID period, there were local governments that were uh, giving preference to. Uh, designated groups for vaccines. There's an argument that, you get, uh, de that they should get um, a preference in treatment. I mean, it's against the Hippocratic Oath to treat people, to not just people based on their medical condition, uh, based on some arbitrary uh, ethnic or racial criteria. But, you know, I mean, the good news is that maybe everyone will just start lying about their race and that will undermine it. I mean, I would, frankly, if I, if you tell me, yeah, you can either get treated right now for your heart attack if you put down that you're Hispanic or wait, you know, two hours and you may be dead by then. I know what I'm doing. So it could, <laughs> it could undermine the system, but it's really, I mean, this, to me, this is like, even though it's well-intentioned, it's like Mengele level stuff to have the government start deciding who's worthy of medical mm -hmm. treatment based on race and ethnicity. I mean, more generally, I think that uh, we should, you know, uh, really think about why we're using these classifications and what the purpose serves in almost all cases, other than maybe this basic data collection for discrimination, using race is not the best way of doing it. Even if using race was the racial classifications we happen to use are sufficiently arbitrary that uh, I still wouldn't use them. Uh, and then I say, you know, in the affirmative action context, a lot, despite all the talk about diversity uh, in higher education that was mandated by the Supreme Court, the underlying justification is still primarily, look, we really feel that African-Americans were historically excluded from mainstream American life, but we want to make sure that they are also represented in elite institutions and have that opportunity that previous generations were denied. And if that's what you want to do, you could, as I suggest in the book, you could actually limit the classification to what some folks call ADAS, which is American descendants of slaves, uh, and target it there. And then uh, it's no longer really a racial classification. If you're the son of the Nigerian ambassador to the United States, you go to American high school and decide to stay here. You're not eligible just because you're black. Uh, but if you're, you know, but you may be eligible because, hey, you know, my grandfather had to leave Mississippi under threat of lynching in 1950. And it's been, uh, you know, we've had trouble uh, uh, becoming uh, economically successful since then and give it, getting that leg up may be helpful. Now, one could argue we shouldn't even be doing that, uh, but I'm saying if that's your goal, if the goal is to help that specific group of people, why do we? Why are we giving affirmative action preferences uh, to you know 
people who just immigrated from Mexico and their children and so forth. And in fact, you know, one thing, one last point I really want to make because it almost never comes up in this context. Um, we talk a lot about affirmative action in higher education because there seems to be a lot more interest in that for whatever reason. But many, many, many billions of dollars of government contracts are also subject to various kinds of preferences. And unlike in higher education, uh, there's no distinction between groups made at all. There's no uh, there's no like broader preference for this group or that group. If you are a member of any of the designated groups, you get exactly the same preference as any as any member of any of the other groups. So if you are the um, child of an Indian engineer who went to MIT, uh, as quite and is you know you live in a fancy suburb and went to private schools, you get the exact same preference uh, as someone whose ancestors were enslaved in the United States and subject to Jim Crow and whatnot. And in fact, while it's really hard to get uh, firm statistics, I would guess that educated guess very like less than twenty percent of the preferences in government contracts are actually going to African Americans, even though African Americans were really their uh, original intended primary beneficiaries. And again, one could argue back and forth about to what extent the government should be in this sort of business at all. But if the, mm -hmm. but at least the policy should make a, a sense based on what the actual goal is. Why the difference between the two? I'm sorry. I know I said that was going to be the last question, but it isn't. Um, in higher education, uh, you're required to, uh, you know, it's part of a, a broader process where you're trying to create a class of diverse, diverse group of people, plus the Supreme Court has said, and that's the only acceptable rationale uh, for diversity in the, uh, for affirmative action higher education. So uh, in that sense, you want to have like enough of each group of African-Americans are on average have lower SAT scores than Hispanic Americans to get a representation of both groups, you're going to have to give a higher preference to African Americans. For the contracting context, the idea is contracting has been uh, um, dominated by white men. There was discrimination in the industry, discrimination by government, and all people of color should therefore benefit. Or, but, but you know, I'm in a sense, I'm, I'm making it sound more rational and thought than it was. In some sense, a lot, all, one lesson of my book is the reason we have the arbitrary, a lot of the arbitrariness in the system we do is because the system is actually arbitrary. No one really gave it a lot of thought. Things just developed politically uh, in some in certain random ways, and there was sort of path dependence in that way. And especially with regard to to immigrant minority groups that are mostly composed of immigrants and their post-1965 immigrants and their descendants. Back in the 70s, when these policies were being made, there were a lot fewer of them, and uh, and people really weren't focused. They're really focusing on the black-white divide, and a lot of the policies that were instituted for the other groups were made haphazardly without really thinking much about it because that wasn't where the political action was. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, David. Thank you, really Randy, for having me. So great.